We're going to continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of His Word, Psalm 34. That's been our passage for this summer. And uh, if you want to go on and be finding Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to spend some time there as well. So Psalm 34, verse 8 will be our emphasis this morning, but we'll go on and read verses 1 through 8. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray together. Taste. Father, give us a taste of who you really are. Who you really are. And may our appetite for you be greater than the other appetites that compete for supremacy in our lives. May what we hunger for most be you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my son Abel was just a little guy, still in his car seat in my truck, we pulled over here on Sunset Avenue to Sonic and uh, joyfully, I was going to introduce him to the Sonic Lemonberry Slush. Got him the kitty size, got myself the extra large, handed it to him, said, man, this is going to taste so good. So he started to take a sip, and about that time, I got a text on my phone, and I started to look down at it, and I was responding to the text when I heard him crying from the back seat, and that was not what I anticipated his response to be to the Sonic Lemonberry slush. But here's what happened. Some of you already know what happened. He uh, drank it really fast. And I wasn't paying attention, had given no word of warning. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and his hands were like this on his head. And so I gave him the official advice, which is put your tongue on the roof of your mouth, and you're just going to have to wait this out. You know, an ice cream headache will sub- subside. Not everything that tastes good is good. Or a better way of saying it might be, not everything that tastes good at first is good in the end. Revenge tastes good at first, but friends, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. Bitterness. We don't call bitterness bitterness because of how it tastes at first. We call bitterness bitterness because how it tastes in the end. David, from a certain perspective, as he sits in the cave of Adullam, having escaped imprisonment in Gath because he acted insane, and now sits at the cave of Adullam with everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, 
we might say he would be justified in becoming bitter. Hey, he's already proven he can take out Goliath. Saul was scared to death of Goliath. You think David can't step up and take Saul down? We're asking God to help us direct away from wanting a scenario to come in play where I win and shift over to being able to say what we really want, what we really have a taste for, is for Christ to win. And Christ's victory looks like Calvary. That's what it looks like, and then it leads to empty tomb. Amen? And so, so God works contrary to where our sin nature works. Some things taste bitter at first, but they get sweeter as time goes on. That's the terminology David uses in Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say taste and see that revenge is sweet. Saul getting his comeuppance is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. David, we're told, in fact, when the prophet Samuel says to Saul, God has rejected you as king and has sought out a man after his own heart to be king in your place. That's sort of the description that we can give David. He is a man after God's own heart. So whatever you're after in life, it only gets sweet and sweeter and sweeter if what you're after is God's own heart. And here's the truth of the matter. If you're after God's own heart, your heart will begin to be more and more like His heart. If you could have just one thing, we've, always, we've all played this game, right? If you had one wish, what would you wish for? And then we always have to throw in the caveat, what? But you can't ask for more wishes, right? If you could have one thing, what is it that you really want? And in line with Psalm 34, verse 8, I want to encourage you that if you could have just one thing, the best thing to have is a taste, an appetite you could have that it won't really matter what you don't have if you've got that Jesus put it this way was a profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul so we've got uh, three points what I usually have right so we'll start with this possessing a taste for God is the greatest thing you can have Again, David is a man after God's own heart, and sort of the way that we're designed, how you exist, having been created by God, you, you really can only have one supreme and superior appetite. Now, you know about your physical appetites. Uh, you, you get hungry. You, you, can't, you can't live without food. You can't live without water, right? But your soul also has appetites. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And your soul has has appetites too. And in the same way, physically speaking, you can uh, try to satisfy your appetite with sonic slushes. That would make you terribly unhealthy. You can try to appease or satisfy or feed your soul's appetite with things that are really unhealthy. 
But ultimately, you can only have one ultimate appetite. So just to explain it again, how we've often talked about it as a church family, it's not really complicated to determine what it is that is the focus of your life. And you can't have ten focuses, you can only have one. One thing that really functions as your God. And it's not about what you say your God is, it's about what your functional God really is. And you can determine what it is in a really simple way. It's three things, you add them up, and you will determine what your God really is. Number one is your attention. What do you give your attention to? Hey, you've got two free hours this afternoon. Nobody's making a claim on your time. Nobody's making a demand on your attention. What do you give your attention to? If you can do whatever it is you want to do, what do you do? What is it that you put other things on hold for? Who's the phone call that you glance at it and you say, not right now. Y'all don't do that, do you? And then who is it that calls and you say, absolutely. We all have attention. And what is it that you give your attention to? Next is your affection. What is it that, man, if you just talk about it or you hear somebody else talking, you just gravitate to that conversation. What is it that stirs your affections? Man, read the Psalms as the deer thirsts for water, so my soul thirsts after God. You've got your attention. You've got your affection. And then you've got your allegiance. What is your loyalty for? Now you take, and it won't be hard for you if you're honest, to take inventory of your life and say, my attention, my affection, my allegiance, I add those three things up. That, friends, is what you worship. That is what functions as your God. And there are a lot of false gods. Money might be the answer to your question. Entertainment, that might be. If I can just have two hours today, we're streaming. That's my afternoon. Does that make sense? David is in a season of his life where his attention, his affection, his allegiance can be revenge. But his appetite, verse 8, is I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Sometimes we have an appetite for self-pity or an appetite for cynicism or an appetite for power. Who are you when no one is watching you? That's what we see in 1 Samuel 24. Saul's in the cave. Bodyguards aren't with him. David sneaks in. Nobody watching. That's, that's actually not true, though, is it? God sees. It's just a deception to, to think nobody else sees. Oh, God sees. And who you are when no one is around is who you really are. And can I simply ask you the question, do you have a hunger for God when no one else is around? Jesus teaches us this in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, go into your closet and close the door. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, don't make your face look gloomy so everybody notices. But wash your face. And your Father who sees, it's a phrase Jesus uses it, over and over in the sermon, in secret will reward you. In 1 Samuel 24, in secret, David has an opportunity to strike down his enemy, but he doesn't. Why? Because he had an appetite greater than his appetite for the throne. His appetite was to please the real king who is the Lord. Do you do that? 
You have a controlling appetite in your life, a hunger that determines what you do because it reveals at your core who you really are. And can we pause for a moment to point this out? In religious church circles, we've learned how to make something appear on the outside that isn't necessarily true on the inside. We all know how to do this. But then, when no one is around, David's controlling appetite. I mean, what controls what he says and what he does because it's who he really is. He says, in this moment, I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to see that David wrote Psalm 34 before the actions of 1 Samuel 24. Does that make sense? He does what he does in 1 Samuel 24 because he believes what he believes as revealed in Psalm 34. So possessing a taste for God is the greatest thing that you can have. When, when David is there with the person who's caused the most harm in his life, his response is a response of grace. And that's a picture of God's heart towards you. So first, possessing this is the best thing you can have. Second, preserving a taste for God is the greatest thing that you can do. Preserving a taste. That's why I've asked you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. In my estimation, Ephesians 4 verses 17 and following will give us a, a lot of help in preserving a taste for God. Ever burned your tongue? Couldn't really taste, right? There are things you can do that, that sort of uh, can, can alter your, your taste for God. And we're going to see them very clearly what, what they are. In Ephesians 4, 17, just to get a context, the Apostle Paul is, is writing believers. That's important to know. Uh, he's writing and addressing people who believe in Jesus. So he says, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Your life should be different. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what it means to, to be lost. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the new person that you are in Christ isn't like me putting on another jacket to cover this jacket. No, you have to take one off, the old self, be renewed, and everything that you think about everything is essentially what he's saying, and then put on the new self. Now, uh, so much I would love to say about verses 17 through 24, but for the sake of our purposes this morning, verses 25 through 32 are going to teach us the things that would lead you in your life to not have a taste for God. First one is in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You don't speak the truth. Or, or, or maybe a helpful way for us to understand it is you sort of build a false identity that other people see that's not really true of you. 
then you have no taste for God at that point, right? What you have a taste for is your own reputation. You love yourself more than you love the Lord, and it's more important to you what everybody thinks about you than what God knows about you, and you've lost a taste for God. So important that we tell one another the truth. You'll see that every example that we have follows the pattern of putting off the old self, being renewed in your mind, and putting on the new. So put off the old self means put away falsehood. Because we're members of one another. Speak the truth. So falsehood. And if you're in a pattern of lies or half-truths or whatever we might want to call it, you lose a taste for God. Second is anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Question, does David have some reasons to be angry when he writes Psalm 34, verse 8? Well, we, we read them briefly at the beginning of the service. Why did Saul got against me? What did I ever do to him? David becomes a target of Saul in light of his obedience to the Lord. So we need to get this straight. As you obey the Lord, it doesn't mean that everything's going to go well for you in this world. In fact, sometimes because you obey the Lord, or often because you obey the Lord, you become a target. But be, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And you let uh, anger, well, we're going to talk about this more in, in a moment, because the Bible talks about this more in a moment. You let anger begin to dominate and become the ruling appetite of your life? What did the Bible just tell you? You've let the door wide open for the enemy. And Jesus warned us, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. David could have done something in that cave that would have lit the whole country on fire. Take him out. Claim the throne. Now, David doesn't have to manipulate acquiring the throne because God's already promised it to him. So he doesn't have to take it. He's going to receive it, but, but not... Man, I would love it if we could learn this. The acquisition of godly things will never come through ungodly means. Say this again. The acquisition of godly things will never come through ungodly means. God will never bless us at the expense of our holiness. And that's what David demonstrates. He's not going to let the sun go down on his anger. So simple Bible principle is how do you know when something needs to be addressed? Because this is what we do. We have wrong that's done. Either we do wrong or wrong is done to us. When do I address it? And the simplest answer I can give in light of Ephesians 4 is if it's causing you to toss and turn at night and you can't sleep and the sun's going down and you're still kind of grinding on it, it needs to be addressed. That needs to happen in your marriage. That needs to happen between parents and children. That needs to happen between brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church. Who's he writing to? Believers. This is how believers handle things. If your brother has something against you, go to your brother before you give your offering. Jesus said, Pay attention to yourself. This is Luke 17. Pay attention to yourself. Real fast. Man, when somebody wrongs you, what you want to do is pay attention to them. But Jesus said, you need to pay attention to yourself in that moment. Rebuke your brother if he's wronged you. Say, man, that's not right. That's not in line with the scripture. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
Don't let the sun go down over and over and over again. The enemy does his very best work in the angry heart. Angry heart is not a heart that has an appetite for God. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You'll also lose a taste for God if you lack generosity. Be a hard worker. Be diligent. Be faithful. But then when you get to paycheck, don't say it all belongs to me. He says so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. So we don't work and then take more and more for ourselves. That's directly in opposition to the heart of God. God's a giver. God is generous. We can get turned in on ourselves and says it all belongs to me. It all belongs to the Lord. And then verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. An unwise use of words is indicative of someone who's lost their taste for God. I mean, your words are powerful. We'll, we'll study this more because Psalm 34 will bring it up again. Keep my tongue from evil, David will say. But man, cutting others down, gossip, inappropriate sarcasm. And unfortunately, what often happens, I was going to say a lot of ways that, that men ultimately live their lives, but, but maybe that's too <laughs> limited, maybe how all of us live, our, is that everything sort of becomes a joke. And nothing serious anymore, nothing sober anymore. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Man, if, is what I'm going to say, is it going to edify the person who hears? And then I'll just tell you again and again, if you're going to say something about somebody who's not present, you don't dare say it. If, they w- if you wouldn't say it if they were present, then you don't say it, right? One of the first things we learn in life. If you don't have anything nice to say, we might tweak it on the base of this scripture. If you don't have anything grace-giving to say, then don't say anything at all. Because Jesus told us it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And you can go back and you can read 1 Samuel, the whole book. You will not find one occasion where David disparages Saul with his words. Not one occasion. And then you want to talk about losing a taste for God. I mean, we're, we're talking about... We can see these things, falsehood, unrighteous anger, lack of generosity, and an unwise use of words. Can we all agree that those are diametrically opposed to the heart of God? The heart, God says, I cannot lie. God never has unrighteous anger. Now, he's got some righteous anger, and God never lacks generosity. And every word that God speaks are words of grace and fit the occasion. But then we get some more information, and God help us to teach and learn these things accurately. An unforgiving spirit means you've lost a taste for God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, that verb sealed. Back in those days when Paul would write a letter or anybody would write a letter, no stamps, right? You'd put a seal on it. it was his, you'd melt some wax and then you'd have a signet ring or something like that and it'd be kind of your uh, uh, identifier. And, and so it's a mark of authenticity. I really wrote this letter. The mark of authenticity for a believer in Jesus Christ is uh, 
is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? Let's just say it again and again and again. The mark of authenticity in your life as a follower of Jesus is the promised Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. And he's beginning to change your heart to look more and more like the heart of Christ. And look at the very first uh, statement after talking about grieving the Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So those are not uh, just a random assortment of words that Paul just kind of wrote out. He's saying that this is what happens in the heart. So I'm going to use this illustration. Can everybody see that? Kettle. Now let's just pretend for a moment I put this kettle on the stovetop. It's full of water. And I cut the temperature up to 350 degrees. Should it be hotter, 400? What do you want to put it on? Let's say you just put it all the way. Now, what's going to happen? Steam's not going to come flying out of this immediately, is it? But what's beginning to happen to the water? It starts to boil, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until the steam comes out. That's what Paul's talking about. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. When you've got some people in your life and you start to think about them, you start to do the thing that you do. The teeth get gritted. The blood pressure spikes. If you've got a Fitbit, you look down there and the heart rate, 135. Gripping that steering wheel. I think in the car a lot, so that's my image. What's happened? Where does it start? Bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness is when you've been hurt, and that sun has gone down again and again and again, and it didn't get resolved. Now, bitterness doesn't stay bitter. It starts to cause a chain reaction. You heard it in 1 Samuel 24. Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David, and David became captain over them. That's significant because you can come along with a different captain who tell you to do something different with that bitterness. Most captains, in fact, I'll go in and say all captains other than Jesus will tell you that you harbor that bitterness and you let that bitterness begin to be your motivator in life for how you treat people, how you view yourself, and what your goal is. And it's twisting. An opportunity for the devil has arisen. And now the great commission, obedience to the Lord, that's been removed. And my life is now about getting even. So bitterness turns, well, let's just read it. Bitterness. And now you grind on it and now it's wrath. You might like to study words, where words come from. There are, there are three words. I, I read this this week. I'd never heard it before. Three words in English language. I don't think we really use any of them frequently that are related. Wrath, wreath, and wraith. They're all related. Here's how they're related. Wrath is a slow burn of anger. I mean, now, now we've moved to something happened to it's being replayed, and now the temperature is rising, and it's a slow burn right here. And how that's related to wreath is, what is a wreath? Should have brought a wreath, right? A, a wreath is something that's all twisted together, right? And that's what wrath is. Your, your, your inside is getting twisted, getting distorted, getting kind of 
turned in on itself. And that's some of our hearts. We got, it's not a Christmas wreath, it's a wrath wreath. It's always right there, man. Put a new bow on it, but it's there. And then wraith. You know what a wraith is? It's a ghost, right? It's haunted. And, and specifically, it talks about a wraith is, you know, wraiths aren't real, I don't believe, right? But, but, but a wraith is a ghost that's stuck in the past whose entire future is defined by what happened back then. So if you got wrath going on in the heart, now you got the wreath hanging out, you've become a wraith, right? And, and now that's your existence. You're haunted. But then it keeps going. So that bitterness unresolved becomes a wrath that is ongoing that turns into anger. Anger, the reference here is, that's just sort of the constant state of the heart. Kind of always angry. The default setting of your heart is angry. Sometimes we say somebody snapped. They didn't snap. Just what's been down here comes out, right? Right now we got boiling water. But if the water continues to boil, what's in starts to come out. And that's what happens in the verse. Anger and clamor. Clamor is audible. Right? The heart is bitter. The heart is wrathful. The heart is anger. You've rehearsed the conversation in your mind. And then there you are standing in the cave. And there is Saul. And I got my sword. And it's time to go. It's on. And the words. Man, you want to talk about corrupting words? It's nothing but corrupting words that begin to come out of the mouth. Falsehoods start to come out of the mouth. Revenge and anger. And guess who's on the scene? Oh, we gave him an opportunity. And I'll tell you this, you might miss an opportunity in your life, but the devil doesn't miss very many at all. Because it's not about steam. He wants this thing to burn the whole house down. Burn the whole church down. And that cave gets lit on fire because now there's clamor and now there's slander. Slander is when in your speech you want to influence other people to see the person you're angry with in the same way that you do. Got the phone. And some of us are well rehearsed in this. You, don't even, you can just use pronouns. You don't have to say a name. Guess what he did this time? Guess what she said today? And now it's slander. And then the end game is malice. What's malice? Malice is when you get to the point in your heart that you really want harm to come to another person. That's malice. That's the end game. And sometimes anger works in such a way that it's red hot and it is a fire but for some of us, this isn't quite a good illustration because it's not fiery, it's ice cold. It's not, I'm always talking. It's actually, I'm never talking. And I'm actually shutting down. And I'm not like a roaring flame. I'm like an iceberg. I'm just done. And what I want you to see is David could have gotten there. He's got, in a manner of speaking, justification but David we are told is a man after God's own heart
we're told here not just what not to do, but now we're told what to do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And that's the third point, which is simply passing on a taste for God is the greatest calling on your life. Passing on a taste for God. When bitterness gets in the heart, one of the first things to go is kindness. Bitterness is harbored. Kindness, uh, kindness, uh, bitterness and kindness aren't going to occupy the same heart at the same time, right? And, and then what goes next is tenderheartedness. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor take the heart, and instead of being tender, which means sensitive to the things of God, sensitive to His voice, having a taste for God, that goes to the wayside. And then we're left with an unforgiving spirit. Now, I want to say with clarity, we can use David as an example. Let's not misunderstand. Please know that I'm not saying forgiveness means you just say, well, okay, what they did is all right. I'll just forgive and put myself back in that situation. Not what we're saying. When Saul threw a spear at David, what did David do? He got out of there. So, so let's not mistake that we're saying, well, if something's wrong being done to you, we're, we're not saying for, if you just forgive and just go back. No, you, in abusive situations, the best thing you can do is say, I'm being abused. It's not right. So some things can be called out into light. Does that make sense? So when David has a spear go one way and then one other, he, he left. But Jesus said, pay attention to yourself. Because when someone starts to throw a spear, the heart will say, oh yeah, think you can throw it? Watch this. And in that scenario, you think of Calvary. Nails, spears. I think sometimes in my life, I want to live the crucified life without a crucifixion. Anybody know what I mean? It hurts. It hurts. So here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an unwillingness to hurl the spear back while maintaining a willingness to work for the spear thrower's good. That's Christ-like. To be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, to forgive. The most powerful thing in the universe is the forgiveness of God for his people in Christ Jesus. Nothing is going to come against that and overcome. You are right now passing on your greatest appetite to everyone who is around you. You're doing that. You're a witness for somebody and something. 
passing on a taste for God is the greatest calling of your life. You're kind of a living Yelp review. Anybody ever been on Yelp? I'm going to go eat somewhere. I'm going to look it up. We love to review things in our culture, don't we? Get on there and, man, your life is a review. And in particular, your response in the hardest season of your life will be the most read review you ever write. And here's David. Wronged again and again. Let's read his review. Oh, taste and see that revenge is a dish best served cold. Not what he says. What goes around comes around. It's not what he says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Your heart more like Saul's or more like David's? Saul laid claim, has a claim on a throne that does not belong to him. It's where most of your anger and foolish decisions come from. Here's the good news for us. Only one sits on the throne. There's only one king. His name is Jesus. And the one on the throne is the one crucified on the cross. Amazing grace. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one may dare even to die. If when you were his enemy, Christ extended you grace, made you his own, and now is shaping your heart to be more like his, one of the places that that most will clearly show up that you really have an appetite for God is that you likewise treat your enemies as Christ treated you before you belonged to him. We're going to stand together and we're going to pray together and move in time of response. And as you stand, and if you don't mind just bowing your head, You can go read this in Luke 17 today if you want to. We studied it in my Sunday school class. But When Jesus told the disciples, hey, if, uh, pay attention to yourself. If, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And that's also where he says, if it happens to be seven times in a day, you do. And here was the disciples' response. Increase our faith. <laughs> in other words, what you're asking us to do, we cannot do. And it's in that moment that Jesus said, oh, if you, had, if you had faith the size of a little mustard seed, he'd move mountains. I don't know that there is a larger mountain to be moved in the human heart than the mountain of unforgiveness. But listen to what Jesus said. If you believe, if you had a mustard seed, in other words, if you believe I am who I say I am and I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, that I'm the wronged one who in the incarnation drew near and is going to Jerusalem to be crucified, if you have faith, that's who I am, you can say to that mountain, be moved. Let all bitterness and wrath and, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
You can give it to God. Say, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And praise God Almighty, I didn't get what I deserve. Help me, Lord, help me. What's the greatest appetite in your life right now? What do you hunger for above all things? Are you fighting to preserve a taste for him, a hunger for him? And what is the appetite that you're passing on? What are you telling people again and again? You've you got to taste this. you got to taste for this. God, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for King Jesus. Father, thank you that when we were your enemies, you extended grace and kindness and mercy to us. May, uh, may it be evident that our hearts are becoming more and more like yours, particularly in what we've talked about today. I pray you'd bring a measure of help and healing that's led of the Holy Spirit. This number of people today uh, we, we've been preaching from the perspective of David. But, oh, God, would you stop some Saul's in their tracks right now that are here? That they have been given over to anger, hostility, and they've concluded that everything wrong in their life is so-and-so's fault. God, bring them to repentance. That they throw themselves on a merciful Savior. And in a manner of speaking, that's what David was doing in the cave. Providing an opportunity for Saul to come to repentance. In Jesus' name.